Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We made this. Welcome to Movieversaries, an official We Made This podcast network show. I'm your host, Bo Nicholson. This is where we celebrate and sometimes reevaluate some of the greatest movies ever on a significant anniversary. On this episode, we are discussing Guillermo del Toro's kaiju fantasies writ large, Pacific Rim, on its 10th anniversary. And to help me discuss the film, I'm very lucky to be joined by someone who has written perhaps the most thoughtful observations on this film you'll find anywhere on the internet. He's the chief of Neil Before Blog and the accompanying Neil Before Pod, as well as a co-host of We Are Starfleet. It's Craig McKenzie. Craig, lovely to speak with you again. It has been a while. It has been a while. And don't credit me with the quality of writing because Pacific Rim had quite a moment on the internet with fan fiction and so on. So I wouldn't push myself to the top of that pile by any means. I would like to suggest two things there. One is that I have not read that much about this film. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just qualify it with that. Maybe it's the uh, most thoughtful observation on the film that I've read, at least. Well, that would be technically accurate, perhaps. Exactly. And and secondly, you are nothing if not modest about your own skills. So I'll just put that out there. Uh, for anyone that's interested in reading that, it, I will put the show notes, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, Craig McKenzie, we are here to talk about Pacific Rim at your suggestion, a film directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's, uh, let's, let's go through the plot. Earth is under... <laughs> constant assault from colossal sea monsters known as kaiju to combat this threat humanity has constructed for some reason massive humanoid robots called jaegers piloted by skilled teams they uh they have to control the robots by basically becoming one with the robot in a mental and emotional sense which they do by drifting and having a drift compatible teammate with them often family members as the kaiju attacks escalate a washed-up Jaeger pilot, Raleigh Beckett, that's Raleigh, not Rayleigh, as they keep saying in the movie, Charlie Hunnam, is called back into service to join our rookie pilot, Mako Mori, played by Rinko Kikuchi, in the last-ditch effort to save the world. Together, they must navigate the complexities of piloting the Jaeger, face their own personal demons, and thwart the relentless kaiju. The fate of humanity hangs in the balance as epic battles and high-stakes drama unfolds. It's written and directed, as I mentioned, by Guillermo del Toro, with the story and the writing by Travis Beecham as well. It also stars Idris Elba as the commander of the fleet of Jaegers, the impressively named Stacker Pentecost, was shot by Guillermo Navarro, who also shot Pan's Labyrinth for Guillermo del Toro. And the score is composed by Raman Jawadi, who has two Emmys to his name for his work on Game of Thrones. It was BAFTA and Critics' Choice nominated in visual effects, and has a meta score of just 65, which is probably 
lukewarm, 65 out of 100. But what I would like to know, Craig McKenzie, is what does this film mean to you? Well, I would say it's one of my favourite films, actually. It's one that I keep going back to. I remember I absolutely loved it when I saw it in the cinema back in 2013. I've seen it a couple of times in the cinema since. They don't bring it back very often, which is a shame because you can imagine on IMAX it really comes alive. But yeah, I absolutely love it. I think it there's an old school blockbuster quality about it. And it was out just before the relentless onslaught of blockbusters. You could argue that the kaiju prediction is almost the way that blockbusters play out. You know, we'll get a couple and then we'll and then eventually we'll be getting one every ten minutes. <laughs> That's how it's gonna escalate. <laughs> but we'll the, get a double event. Yeah, double event, triple event. I don't know how many blockbusters are out a week at the moment. It's insane. This year was pretty insane with with no gaps between them. So yeah, a bit prescient in that regard. It's almost a it's a modern reading of of that prediction in a way. But yeah, it's, it's there's something old school about it. it. It feels like a film that would have come out around the same time as Independence Day, stuff like that, where it was an event. And I think if it had been in a less cynical crowded landscape it would have felt like an event but i love it i can't really get enough of it as you know it's like i say i keep coming back to it it's it's interesting because uh that independence day reference that you make goodness gracious that speech from idris elba towards the end of the movie where he's like we are gonna cancel the apocalypse and you're like that that may as well have been in independence day that little bit it was in the trailer which is annoying because by the time you saw the film, I was sick of the speech. I had a similar reaction to uh, Killers of the Flower Moon when they finally sit around that table and they have the <laughs> the shot of the of DiCaprio in Glaston, and I'm just like, oh, we finally have it. Okay, and I can stop seeing it on the internet in every single <laughs> screenshot of this film. And I love that movie, by the way. But uh, yes, speaking of loving movies, I did not love. Pans, not sorry, Pans. I do love Pans Labyrinth. I did not love Pacific Rim when it came out. I saw it at the cinema with my friend Ted. It was like a cute bro date that we had. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it was actually during a time. I don't know if it was a headspace thing. I was very recently single, and my friend Ted just went, "Mate, let's go out. Couple of bros. Let's get you out of the house." So it's like you like movies. Let's go watch this movie, and he loved it. And I, I did not. And to put my colors to the mask, I am someone that, as you would know, Craig, I'm less into blockbuster cinema than a lot of people. Uh, I don't love superhero movies. I don't love, you know, big CGI spectacular movies like this sort of thing. So right off the bat, it's got a disadvantage with me. And also I went into it being like, well, it's directed by the director of Pan's Labyrinth. And Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorite movies. I love Pan's Labyrinth. I saw that in cinema and uh, and that lit a fire inside of me that still rages today. Uh, so I went in there expecting maybe too much when I was already in maybe not, not the best headspace. So <laughs> I'm just watching this movie and I'm just like, oh, man. And then I didn't think about it for about nine and a half years. <laughs> Um, and then, and then suddenly, and then suddenly, uh, this comes around this year and, and then you're just like, man, yeah, we should do Pacific Rim. And I'm like, yeah, all right, let's do Pacific Rim. Um, I don't know. Like, let's, let's do that. And, and maybe I remembered it wrong. And then I watched it again and, uh, yeah, 
I guess the question to you, Craig, is do you think it holds up 10 years later? I do. I actually think there's a bit of a timeless quality to it. I've talked a lot about on various podcasts all over the place about how the quality of blockbuster cinema has somewhat degraded, especially lately, where they're just churning them out. They're all they all feel like the same, or most of them feel like the same. They all have loads of problems. They feel like first drafts of scripts, things like that. Mm. But this is, you know, there's a purity to the way that it does its blockbuster thing. It doesn't feel the need to give you an action sequence for every 10 minutes. In fact, it goes a long time without giving you action. It lets you live in its world. It wants you to learn about the setup, learn about the characters, and then when it does give you that big blowout action sequence in Hong Kong, it, it feels earned and it feels like you're ready for it. It's not that, oh, we had one of these 10 minutes ago. It's, it is, wow, ready for this now. I feel like we've been building to this. I, I thought it was going to be actually a template for how people were going to be making blockbusters from that point on. Turns out wrong. But mm. I feel like anybody looking to commission a blockbuster should look at this and think, Maybe we should be trying something along those lines. I felt the same about Dungeons and Dragons when that released. Mm. There was something old school about that and something very confident and deliberate about it. And yeah, do, do more of that. Let us enjoy being in this world for a bit before you're bombarding us with spectacle. I did enjoy that movie. Uh, so what I want to get into and particularly, as, as I said to you off air, I don't intend on this being some big argument i'm i'm willing to accept that uh i this is just not my kind of movie and there are there are criticisms that i do have of it that i will get into i don't i don't intend on being dishonest about it but i don't i I don't find that particularly interesting what i do find interesting was after the second time i watched it and i'm watching it just being like holy shit what the hell am i going to say about this movie (laughs) because i just don't i just don't like it very much but then you sent through a link to your article which you wrote for your website neil before blog the article is called the drift is healing pacific rim and mental health and it's something that i i hadn't really considered before is this is i suppose what makes this interesting what makes this You've, you've sort of spoken about it being hope, what should have been a template for the modern blockbuster that never came to be. And I guess what I want to get into with you is what you see as making this film stand apart from, from those other blockbusters. You say it's one of your favorite movies ever. Why is that? Is, is, is it the fact that The Drift is such a unique concept? Because the idea of, you know, mech robots fighting kaijus and things like that that's pretty that's been done before as, as you said it's been you know we've had iterations of it since king kong or maybe even earlier to find something unique and interesting in this film is that where it lies for you the, the way that they use the drift to talk about bigger issues i think the drift is a really interesting mechanic and the opening bit says that it's based on darpa technology so i think there is something in development that is somewhat similar people i don't know mentally connecting to planes or whatever it's you know they'll they'll be trying to cook up all this stuff trying to you know increase reaction times all that stuff so yeah there is a bit of a scientific grounding to it and it does give you the ins and outs of what it means very quickly so you it's a fairly complex idea actually but it gives you something Mm. really succinct in, in order to help you understand what it how it works and, and what it all means. And yeah, it's a great mechanic. And 
I think in terms of the the way that it functions as a blockbuster as well is I don't think it pretends to be anything more than it is. I feel like Del Toro set out to make a, you know, balls to the wall, something that will delight your inner 10-year-old blockbuster, and he did it. You know, I think that Del Toro is amazing, amazingly varied as a filmmaker. He, mm. It doesn't feel like any two projects he makes in succession are the same thing. He can do the blockbusters, he can do your thoughtful stuff, he can do everything. So, yeah, you can feel his enthusiasm when you're watching the film. You, you feel like he really wanted to make it. And yeah, I love how just unpretentious Del Toro is about his projects. It's like, I want to make this and this is what I'm making right now. It might be the most thoughtful thing in the world. It might not be. It's just what I want to make right now. And someone's given me money to do it. So that's great. There's a quote from him actually that I found, which says, uh, quote, I wanted to make the movie, not a war movie, not a science fiction movie, not a disaster movie. I wanted it to be the kind of movie that has an adventure and has a huge romantic sense of adventure. I wanted to convey a sense of fun, end quote. And that's exactly what you're talking about. This, this, and it's hard not to like him, I think. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of, I love his movies, a lot of them. You know, I, I really, as I said, I love Pan's Labyrinth. I love uh, The Shape of Water. I love Pinocchio that he made uh, for, you know, the previous year. Still haven't seen that. It's a really, really good iteration of Pinocchio, like obviously in and of itself story-wise, but one thing that he is really good at is, yeah, he has these like great emotional cores to his movies, but they also look really fun a lot of the time. Pen's Labyrinth is a great example of that. So is Shape of Water and so is Pinocchio. The animation style is incredible. You can, and you can sense the attention to detail. And, and to quote another person from the film, Charlie Hunnam, he says, what sets Pacific Rim apart is the care and attention to detail and the emotional depth. There are strong relationships between the characters in this film. And, end quote. And that's, that's kind of Guillermo's... Uh, mo isn't it that he he finds these emotional cores actually i I think it's probably more like he finds like a fun concept like you say i'm just gonna make this i want to make a kaiju movie with big fucking robots right and then he goes okay but where is the emotional core and how can i get into that and really really make this film sing to a lot of people and it didn't as i said it didn't sing to me but it very much did sing to you. So I want to talk about the the mental health angle that you mentioned in your article, uh, because to, when, when speaking about the themes of the film, it's pretty hard to ignore it. Uh, the drift is what makes this different to your average blockbuster, I think. And when you deal with the drift, you're dealing with... Uh, essentially for the, for the function of the film, the drift enables the humans to operate the big Jaegers uh, with their minds. Uh, they sort of become one with the Jaeger. If you throw a left punch, the Jaeger will throw a left punch, right? Uh, but you can't do it alone because the mental load is too much. It will kill you. So you need to have two people and therefore you need to have two people that are compatible enough that they can sort of link brains so that when one person wants to throw a right punch, they both want to throw a right punch, which means the Jaeger throws a right punch. That's essentially how it works, right? Like you say, it's a complex idea that is wrapped up in a pretty simple kind of 
telling of it and to the to the film's credit it does move at a decent clip so you know you've got to get through a lot of story and a lot of build-up to get to this point uh so but the interesting thing that you hit on with your article was that it's more than just a shared experience uh to be able to drive the Jaeger it's also a sharing of grief it's a sharing of emotion uh and it's symbolic of I don't know, letting someone in, into your heart, your soul, your mind, uh, which is something that maybe I didn't appreciate the first time I watched it, but it sounds like it really struck a chord with you. Yeah, it's basically the idea that you need connections in order to deal with stuff, in order to process things, in order to move forward. And you see Rally at the start of the film, after the, the prologue, he's drifting he's not dealing with anything at all he's running from it and there's that great line from stacker where he says the world's coming to an end where would you rather die here or in a jaeger it's the idea that no you can you can sit here and mope or you can do something about it you can get in there and you can be present and it is well it's stacker is he's just not interested in in people being emotional around him or complaining around him. He just wants to get the job done and he'll yell at whoever it takes in order to get the job done. Mm. I think that Idris Elba is great in this role and I think the character is very good at kind of keeping the plot going because there are several moments where different characters could get so caught up within themselves that it slows the plot down, but he's just like, no, shut up, let's move on. We have to go on <laughs> to the next thing. And it's it's almost that he's the, the function of the script in a way. But yeah, the, I love the idea of, forging connections and the thing is it, it wasn't something that occurred to me until a couple of years ago when you know when I was inspired to write the, the piece it was I felt really in need of being cheered up and I stuck on Pacific Rim as I've done several times in the past and I found myself thinking about why do I watch this film when I really need cheering up and then all that came into it all the idea of no you you do need other people you can't isolate yourself much as you'd want to and yeah, it's, I think it's very powerful in the way that it does that. It, it doesn't beat you over the head with that idea. Mm. It just gives it to you and then it explores it. And it, it does it visually, actually, which I think Del Toro is particularly good at, is his visual storytelling. So it's the idea of Michael can't process the loss of her parents all those years ago and she hasn't really dealt with it properly. And she does so, but it's done visually. And then she's a bit stronger for it afterwards. It's It's something that... Uh, so we're both in our mid thirties. We're both maybe slightly on the older side of being millennial. Uh, what I've come to find is that a lot of people in our generation are a bit sad yeah. and a bit lonely and a bit disconnected. Like, like you're saying, like uh, the film's saying that we need connection and that connection is actually a path to, you know, victory, I guess in, in the yeah. sense of the film, but in the sense of what it means in, the real world about getting through whatever the grief is and without turning this into an overly political situation, it's basically impossible. I think to live in this world and not experience a ton of grief or a ton of disenfranchisement about how the world is, you know, like you have to work your ass off to barely pay for your, rent or your mortgage or whatever you've got going on plus your food plus maybe a little bit of enjoyment in your life uh maybe you want to travel a little bit good luck to you like i just spent seven weeks in europe as you well know and that it's basically 
bankrupting that situation. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a choice. <laughs> um, doing that when you're renting, Can't take it with you, as they say. That's true. <laughs> and uh, but you know, you, it, it, it just feels like you're constantly on on this wheel, right? Where you're just constantly uh, running, 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 and you can't get a a footing. You know, you can't feel secure or feel safe. And there's that, and then there's obviously human relationships as well because they break down naturally enough or they they go through ebbs and flows and people let you down sometimes and people die you know people expire dogs expire cats expire everyone dies and and we're constantly we're almost like little grief machines just moving through this world (laughs) growing up in a broken world and having to deal with it yeah well and and some of us are just not equipped with the skills whatsoever to cope and this film maybe offers a tonic you know it it, it offers a solution the solution being don't do it alone right don't 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 sit on the wall doing a, a pointless job a literally pointless job do something don't don't sit there and do nothing connect with someone do something if you try to shoulder it by yourself it will kill you i think it's pretty obvious what it's getting out there yeah and particularly when it's when it's like i mean you can drive these Jaegers alone, but it, it it will literally kill you. Um yeah. and that's only in very urgent situations. But the rest of the time, yeah, you need you need to lean on somebody. You need to and not just lean on somebody, it's like completely being vulnerable. Right? Because the idea of the drift is that they can see everything mm. inside your head. We're just gonna take a short break to hear some commercials. Back soon. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. To catch people up that maybe haven't seen Pacific Rim for a while, as you said at the prologue, you know the, these Jaeger drivers are heroes. Raleigh does it with his uh, with his brother. Uh, they come across a, a category of kaiju that is bigger than they've ever seen before, and the, it rips out Raleigh's brother essentially and kills him. And because they were linked in the drift, Raleigh obviously experiences his own situation, his own grief, but also his brothers simultaneously until the brother is extinguished essentially so 
he can feel this, the, the terror and the pain and all of that. And then he just has to somehow get that Jaeger back to land and then just live with that. And kill the Kaiju as well. He has to do that too. Yeah, that's true. So fast forward five years, he's, as we said, he's been quote unquote drifting through life. He gets called back into the fray. They're about to do a test. They're inside of a warehouse. Uh, they're just testing compatibility with, uh, with Marco, the, uh, the character that he's really just met, but they, they are just compatible. And he has like a tiny little blip where it's like a, a tiny little memory of his brother. And then he's like, oh, okay, this is what I've trained for. I got to get back into neutrality so I can operate this Jaeger. And that little blip completely throws Mako out to the point that she can't, she can't bring it back. She's completely lost in her grief. What did you make of that scene? Like, did that, because that scene feels like, you know, when you, when you're having that emotional mental health reading that you have read into, that's a, that's a really important moment in the, in the film. That is that emotional core that Del Toro talked about in that quote, quote, that's what he found there. So you could, you could almost argue that Mako is the protagonist, even though you spend more time with, with Raleigh, because he's already aware of what he needs to do, but she has to learn because she's only ever ran simulations on piloting Jaegers and, and stuff like that. So she's an expert in theory, but when it comes to the practice of it, it's it's a whole different ball game. So yeah, the, the idea she just chases the rabbit, as it calls it. I love all these little terms. It helps make it feel more real, actually, the idea that they, they have these acronyms and it's all mm. this expected stuff. It's There's a manual out there that you could read about operating the, the drift technology and, you know, Chasing the rabbit will be a chapter somewhere and, mm-hmm. and all the warnings on how not to do it or why not to do it. And yeah, the, she goes right back to the day she lost her parents and you see some of the story and then later it tells you the rest of the story and explains why a stacker is so protective of her, stuff like that. But I think it's a very powerful scene, actually, seeing this little girl running away from a giant monster and then suddenly she's in a machine that can fight that monster and she can't distinguish her memory from reality and it's like no i could hit back and she almost does and then almost kills everybody yeah that was that was a bit scary <laughs> uh and that sort of uh that caused a bit of a rethink at that point which as you mentioned stacker played by idris elba is very protective of of marco and we we find out that basically he's like a surrogate father for her after after she was orphaned through that situation he he essentially rescued her as it were it goes to a point where I feel like Rowley's character, Charlie Hunnam, after seeing that, after seeing what what Marco went through, their drift compatibility compatibility almost made sense at that point, didn't it? That that they were yeah. able to be like, okay, this is why we're drift compatible because we both have this shared grief, and that enables them to enrich their connection as they sit as you i think you wrote it in your in your piece they sit um on a ledge somewhere in the warehouse and they're they're connecting in a way that isn't necessarily there is some verbal connection there but it really feels like more than a verbal connection as they are watching open chest surgery on their jaeger essentially where you can see uh gypsy what's it gypsy what gypsy danger Gypsy Danger, yeah. Gypsy Danger's heart. That feels very symbolic, doesn't it? Like where where Guillermo is basically like, look, the Jaeger is exposing its heart, but we are too. Yeah, and 
And you can imagine Stacker as a parent. He's maybe not the best equipped to do it. So he, his advice to Mako is probably, take that grief and push it down. Don't worry about it. Just keep on going, keep on going. Because it feels like that's what he does. Mm. He focuses on the job. He focuses on taking the next step and probably isn't the, the most emotionally healthy person. But again, as the, the driver of the plot, he doesn't really need to be. So you can imagine that he's taught her to not process it in a way. So now she's being forced to because it all just comes to the surface when she connects to someone else and then she has to deal with it. And and Raleigh helps her realize, no, I actually have to process this, deal with it in some way because it's never been resolved for me. So I need to do something about that. In terms of themes of the film, we're talking about, you know, grief and and connecting with other humans and mental health is obviously a very strong film uh, theme there. But only when you've had the reading that you have had of it, eight years after it was made, when you were in a certain headspace. But you already loved that movie and you were already watching it a bunch. Are there other themes that you you said that it, it you know it's quite universal that it's uh, not universal quite timeless in its uh in its execution are there other themes at play there that sort of resonate with you that make it timeless there, there's sort of the idea of cooperation as well it's mentioned very quickly that once giant monsters started attacking all the differences that existed on a global scale fell away and we all worked together on this big problem so there's there's that bit of hope there for a future that could exist as maybe we need some kind of massive disaster that is an existential threat to us as a species to bring us all together. I don't know, but it's, yeah, that's that idea of cooperation. And yeah, so, so what you have is you have this united world that's united against these giant monsters. I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of COVID. Yeah. And to an extent, the world was pretty good at COVID. I think like we, we all sort of eventually, not all, I should stay right there. We did not all get on the same page. Uh, some countries were way better at it than others, but I feel like we did pool our resources to a certain extent. And then once, you know, there was a few different vaccines that seemed to be working uh, that were developed in particular countries. They were, you know, they shared their knowledge and they, they sent them out and they, you know, they made sure that they were able to be, that the population was able to be vaccinated. But I am also a bit disillusioned by the world after COVID, if I'm going to be honest with you, Craig, because there were some crazy people. There there are some full-on crazy people that did not sign up. They did not get vaccinated. They did not get on the same page as everybody else. They were selfish. Uh, some countries particularly were, were worse than others. Uh, there are some countries, um, I'm not sure how big a world news this is but like uh here in australia geographically speaking our closest neighbors are places like papua new guinea new zealand and the pacific islands so you know fiji tonga uh, all these smaller nations and being the big nation of the area we kind of have like a, a responsibility to help them out a little bit uh they were pretty slow to get their vaccines out there um, partly because they, I guess they didn't need them as much because they didn't have huge outbreaks, but partly because of selfishness, of greed, of, of you know, it's not profitable to do that. It's not profitable to make these, these big concessions to these smaller countries, these people. We don't need to worry about compared to our profits. So 
I got to admit, like watching this movie and watching the entire world get together and pool their resources and, and not be arrogant about it. And you have China working with America, working with the UK, working with Australia, working with Russia, which is a deliberate thematic thing, by the way, the idea yeah. of, yeah, like putting all those particular countries together. Suddenly, suddenly I felt a little bit sad watching how they managed to do it in the movie. Uh, we were met with something that was probably killing more people than Kaiju were. And we, uh, we we got through it, but not not unscathed. I think. As well, the thing with COVID is the opportunity existed to change everything afterwards. We could learn a lot from this and and build a better world in its wake, and that just hasn't happened. So perhaps, uh, well, there was a sequel to this, but perhaps a Del Toro sequel would be. Yeah, those international relations, they broke down right away once there was no threat of monsters anymore. Everyone started worrying <laughs> worrying about why they hated other people now <laughs> after all that passed. So you could almost see that being the, the future of it. It's, we'll work together while the monsters are around, but once they're done, we need something to hate and there's no monsters to hate, so I'll hate you instead. Jeez, you're right. You're right. Like that That's exactly how it would go, isn't it? Like uh, China and Russia and America would just go back to hating each other because, I don't know, of most of America misunderstanding communism fundamentally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then you just end up with hating each other for basically no reason. And, 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 and that's it. We, we, we've learned nothing. Oh, geez, that would, be, that would be a really interesting sequel, wouldn't it? That's not what happens in the sequel, by the way. The international relations seem to be intact, but we're not talking about the sequel. And a lot of people would rather you didn't, but I don't mind it, actually. There's no there's no uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, in the director's chair. And as soon yeah. as that happened and I didn't like the first one, I was like, cool, I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> he gets a producer credit, I think, because he did the first one. But he said he hasn't watched it or done any work on it. He just has no interest. He hasn't watched it. He said yeah. publicly hasn't watched it. <laughs> yeah, he just he wasn't spiteful about it. He just said that he had no interest in it because Pacific Rim was his film and then they went and made another one without him. And the reason it was he wasn't directing it was because he had to go and make The Shape of Water, actually, mm. as it happened. And that was it. They they just went ahead and didn't want to wait on him. But the the result would have been far better if they had, for sure. Well, I mean, like there's an argument he said that Guillermo, he might be his country's greatest ever director. He's certainly in the top, let's say, three. I think the Holy Trinity is uh, him, Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, Inaritu, of course. Uh, I think it depends on taste and things like that. But you could argue that Del Toro is the greatest filmmaker to ever come out of his country. I think he improves the sequel. I haven't seen it, um, but it's hard to... It's hard to argue that he couldn't have possibly improved it. I I can see what you're talking about with the corporation theme there. I, I am God. It makes me sad. It just it just like it just makes me so sad. The world has not really changed at all. We've gone back to looking at people wearing masks as if they're weird. We've gone we've gone back to not really worrying about vaccinations right now. Like it's fine. Most people aren't really getting them. Uh, we've gone back to not social distancing. We've gone back to working at the office a lot of the time and not working from home as much and and all these things that were better. And we just completely just turf them because, you know, the powers that be said so. We haven't learned anything. God, it makes me yeah. sad. 
you can imagine the post-kaiju world, certain governments saying, okay, well, the monster threat's over, and now you have to pay for it. Yes, you, mm. you lower-class people. Yes, yeah. Oh, and clean up this mess, too. We're not yeah. going to do that, but, you know, we'll we'll give you food stamps if you do, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Far yeah. out. You're exactly right. The only <sighs> political statement the film really makes is the idea of building the coastal wall, which is obviously a stupid idea. It's okay, so we're gonna build a we're gonna build a massive wall around where the kaiju come from, I guess, and and then what? Just let them sit in there in in the middle of this fence, this gate, this cage that we built for them. Yeah, yeah. as if that's gonna work. Yeah, and then obviously the kaiju tears through the wall in Australia, and it's like, yeah, it's tore through it in seconds. This is, this is worthless. <laughs> and uh, it's worth noting that this is a pre-Trump presidency's movie. So they're not exactly talking about the uh, the Mexican wall uh, to, be, no. to be completely political about it. It's it's more of a, a an act of futility, right? Like the yeah. government has decided that this is the move. They haven't really done their research. They haven't really thought it out. They've spent billions of dollars on it worldwide. And now look at it. It's just lazy and ruined because the kaiju thinks so. Um, yeah that's that's over budget it's it's over time it's never going to be completed you see the the billboard that's completion date never there's someone scrawled on it graffiti wise and it Mm. yeah you you can see the the idea of yeah these the people in charge are idiots as usual and of course stackers like yeah we don't need them we're gonna do our own thing we'll sort this and it's worth mentioning uh, there is that scene and it's kind of played for laughs, but it's it's got to be deliberate. Uh, you know, we 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 re meet Charlie Hunnam's character Raleigh, and he is you know lining up to get a gig on the wall. And there's that scene where it's like, I've got good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? The bad news. All right. Bad news is we lost three people yesterday up on the wall. The good news is. Three job openings. Who wants to eat? Yeah, <laughs> and it's like wow. Like people are literally dying for this stupid fucking idea, which is completely pointless. And the people that are dying are not the rich ones; yeah. they're the ones that are struggling apparently, for food. Apparently, that's the kind of thing that happened when things like the Empire State Building were under construction. People would just mm-hmm. fall and die while they were building it, and it would create job openings. But that was during the uh, Depression as well, where people really wanted the work, so they were happy to climb yeah. as high as they could and and try welding even though they'd never done it before and then you know fall to their death sadly and then there'd be someone else waiting to fill that position right behind them maybe they won't fall maybe they'll get a bit more work done one thing that i've learned through through traveling as much as i have is that if you go to any big bridge any big building a lot of the time there'll be some sort of plaque commemorating what the building is you know like when it was built and all that sort of thing and quite often like an example of this is the sydney harbour bridge which you actually see Right next, right next to the kaiju that as it's ripping through the wall, and uh, it's quite an iconic bridge in in Australia, probably the most iconic bridge in Australia, right next to the Opera House. And it was built. I can't remember exactly when, and it, it tells you when it was built and why it was built and who designed it. And then it sits there and says something like, "Also, sadly, we lost like twenty seven people in the building of this bridge," and you're just like. Holy shit, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of people less than 100 years ago. What are we doing? What is like, what are we talking about? 27 people? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's just one bridge. Like, we're talking about, like, can you imagine 
well, like I, I went to Paris this a number of years ago when it was before it was on fire. The Notre Dame, right? You go inside that thing and you look around. And it's like hundreds of years to build it to the point they did. And you look around and you go, "How the fuck did they build this in the 1400s?" I know the answer. People died. Yeah. <laughs> like that's how they built it. <laughs> it's crazy. They just kept sending people until they didn't die and got it finished. That's that's how these things were done. Yeah, and it just yeah again. So that's mm, okay. So uh, government incompetence. We've got a little bit of that as well, just in there. Yeah. Uh, and there is also an environmental message that is. It's kind of just sort of shoehorned in, I think, a little bit. Um, I think it's basically just uh, GDT being like, and also like we should look after the environment because uh, they they mentioned that the kaiju initially came to our our world. Conditions weren't great. That's what the dinosaurs were. They died out. Uh, And they basically waited until such a time that we polluted the world enough that it was suitable conditions for them to thrive. Uh, and now they're back with a vengeance. A uh, little bit of environmentalism there as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of that. It, it, again, it doesn't beat you over the head with anything that it's doing, which is something that I like about it as well. Because you see, again, you see a lot of sort of modern blockbusters where they'll sit down and they'll moralize for five minutes to tell you what the point of the film is. Whereas this, it just gives it to you just uh, in little bits as it's going. It, you know, there's no overtness to it. And mm. any overtly explored thing is done largely visually as well which is something that i wish did have an influence on as you said this film could have been an influence on blockbusters but not enough people saw it (laughs) not enough people saw it yeah it wasn't it wasn't quite the the big hit that they were hoping for and it's worth mentioning that i mean this was right this is a couple of years after the avengers wait one year after the avengers yeah yeah, so like that that really changed the game, the Avengers. Like obviously prior to that you had, you know, Iron Man and stuff like that. Uh I think Iron Man three came out ten years ago. That came yeah, out. Yeah, this would be the, the same year Iron Man three, yeah. Yeah. Um that was a, probably a bigger hit the Pacific Rim. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh probably. we're 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 one year away from Winter Soldier, which was a huge hit. Uh and then a few years away from basically we're in the middle of Marvel just absolutely dominating cinemas. Uh it's hard for a film that is essentially an original concept, right? It was yeah. it, it came from the brain of Travis Beecham when he was, ironically enough, looking at the water and at the beach, kind of, and he he saw something that looked kind of like a like a kaiju, but it was like a shadow of a pier, and he just thought, oh, okay, imagine if there was a big robot here to like make sure that kaiju doesn't come and hurt me. And I always have doubts about these stories whenever people tell them. It sounds far too poetic as an inspiration point, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it's more likely was... he was just sitting there thinking about it one day at home and thought, I'll try and come up with a, a, a pitch of some sort. And then that was it. Uh, like, I didn't want to be this guy, but I, I, I looked at a picture of Travis Beecham and I was like, this guy absolutely is exactly the guy that looks like somebody that would be sitting in his room. Uh, which would be under his parents' house, uh, and, <laughs> and he would be, uh, you know, constantly thinking about monsters and robots. Like this, this man very clearly loves monsters and robots, uh, which is great. You know, like he's found his niche and he's managed to make it work as a writer of major Hollywood films. 
But uh, yeah, I just I do wonder how much beach this man has actually seen, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, but anyway, that's probably a little bit mean spirited of me. Uh, I I do tend to agree with you. It's it's almost kind of like uh, yeah, I was walking on the beach at La Ciotat and right in front of the cinema where the Lumiere brothers showed, you know, a train arrives at La Ciotat, I saw a shadow at sundown. And the shadow reminded me of Godzilla and King Kong and the finest films in the lineage of kaiju movies. And then I thought to myself, but what if? What if there was a hunter of the kaiju? Nay, we can't say hunter. Let's use the German word, Jäger. Yes, let's do that. And it's almost too poetic, isn't it? It's a nice story, but (laughs) probably didn't happen. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to run with it anyway. Uh, <laughs> sad to say that it didn't have much influence, but I I do think uh, the influence of on this film was interesting. I, I did an episode a couple of episodes ago with Andy Williams discussing the 1933 King Kong. Hmm. And this was a movie that was hugely influential, obviously, for a couple of reasons. One, it's the big monster movie. It has the iconic... Empire State Building scene, of course. Fay Ray's iconic scream. Uh, Kong face, which was less iconic. Uh, and But also having a strong emotional core on the anti-hero, kind of. Like, Kong is kind of mm. like an anti-hero. I, I don't know how to describe Kong as a character, I guess. But there's a strong emotional core where perhaps the strong emotional core shouldn't be. Uh, and you and there's a whole bunch of filmmakers that have watched that movie and have credited that movie as being like, that was the one that really opened my mind. One of those people was Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, and then you end up with Pacific Rim. Then you end up with The Shape of Water, where a, a monster falls in love with a woman. And and you go, well, that all makes sense. It all clicks into gear, doesn't it? That uh, movies like Godzilla, movies like King Kong, and Guillermo's other interests... Uh, have led us to a point where we get this major Hollywood movie. And he wasn't shy about that influence either. There's all that talk about when making the film, The even though they were CGI, the kaiju had to be designed as if someone could wear it as a suit. So it was deliberately homaging the old kaiju films, the Godzillas mm-hmm. where he's fighting random creatures. And there was even some man-made robots in some of the Godzilla movies that would fight Godzilla and stuff like that. So... Yeah, so the influences are obvious, but Del Toro doesn't try to pretend that, yes, we came up with this first. No one else has ever done this before. It is actually <laughs> deliberately riffing on those ideas, the idea. Yeah, we, we have come up with these gorgeous CGI creations, but they look like physically that someone could be inside there walking about. We're just going to take a short break to hear some commercials. Back soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. All right. I need to talk about some stuff now. Now, <laughs> now uh, let's talk shortcomings. 
I'll I'll kick us off because this and as I said, this is not my cup of tea to start with. You know, it's it's just something that I'm not going to love as much as other people are, just for the genre that it is. That's just that's just something that I can't get past. Um, but I also I found it a bit predictable a lot of the time. Like you just you just knew exactly how each beat was going to go uh, to a point. You know, uh, you knew that Pentecost was going to sacrifice himself pretty early on i think you knew that hanum and and uh and marco were going to survive uh you you knew that they would win the day obviously uh you knew the scientists would pull it together charlie day who i always find annoying by the way i always (laughs) i always find him annoying um i haven't watched it's always sunny so maybe that would help but man i find him so annoying uh I don't love visual effects spectacles. So, you know, people that sit there and go, oh, yes, the CGI works amazing. Like, you've got to get in. Like, I, I just can't. I can't get into it. But the biggest thing for me, and it's such a nitpick, my friend, is such a nitpick. And I know it's a nitpick, but it really it took me out of the movie so badly. The Australian accents. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? What, like, what are they, like... Like they have these people even met an Australian? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, they, they, okay. So, they, by the way, they have these two Australian characters. As you said, they broke through the wall in Sydney. And uh, these two characters, uh, a father and son, get into a Jaeger and kill off that kaiju, save the day, and are the biggest heroes in the world, the, the rock stars of the, of the Jaeger driving world. And they're Australian for some reason. Um, it, it didn't have to break through a wall in Sydney. It didn't have to be Australian. It, I don't understand why they had to make them Australian. But if you are going to make them Australian, then don't get an American actor and a British actor that do terrible accents. Get Australian actors. They're cheap <laughs> as shit. What are we talking about? Australian actors will work for a meat pie. Maybe not for... <laughs> like, like, what are, like, what are, like, you know, so... Uh, and this is the thing, you know, I'm sure people can hear that I am Australian. Uh, I don't sound like this, though, Cobber. Oh, geez, we've got to get that kaiju. You know, like, far out, mate. Like, I, I honestly, that movie could have been just perfectly fine and had that, and I would hate it. <laughs> so I know that's irrational, but that's, that's, that's my little soapbox. Uh, just suppose, ridiculous. Suppose geographically, Sydney was one of the places that it could have been because it is very specifically set in the, you know, on the Pacific Rim. Hence the title. So, yes. there's there's only a few places that are within, you know, the radius or whatever of, of where the kaiju come from. But yeah, the the Australian accents. I, I just found it funny, especially because the son. That I don't can't remember the actor's name, but he uh, he was in a soap over here called EastEnders, and I was just thinking, you've got like two soaps where there'd be actors looking for a big blockbuster thing to be in. Why not Home and Away, Neighbours, <laughs> Bang, yeah. Yeah, one <laughs> of those. They, they also they're usually pretty jacked, so you could get one of them. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like you you've met me, I'm incredibly jacked. Um... <laughs> All Australians are just ripped. That's yeah. Apart from my brother-in-law, we all dead set look like we're on the set of Home and Away. We we just 
just bronze and beautiful. Going surfing at lunchtime, every lunchtime, all that. Every stuff. lunchtime, yeah. It doesn't matter how close you are to a to the ocean. We find a way. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's it is a thing. COVID didn't stop us. We were down the beach every day. Uh, no, obviously not all Australians like that, but there are plenty, and it has worked for Hollywood before to just get random Australians that are pretty no name, and suddenly they become. Hugh Jackman, Guy Pearce, Chris Hemsworth, you know, like Margot Robbie. Like we have plenty of Australian actors that are fine and they're perfectly serviceable in a movie like this. But I also didn't, I didn't love the characters either. I didn't love like little emotional beats, like like the, the weird fight between, you know, the Australian son and, uh, and Riley's character is just like, I don't know. I found that a bit over the top, but the bit that I found particularly over the top was when they came and, you know, saved the australians and <laughs> and then it was like my son would never admit it but you know we're really grateful and then it has this like really egregious like cut to the sun just like nodding like, <laughs> like winking almost and i'm like oh come on come on Guillermo. you're <laughs> like what are, what are we doing here that's part of that hopeful cooperation angle isn't it the idea that yeah they were beating each other up 10 minutes ago or however long it was but now they're they've come to a grudging respect for each other i get it thematically you're right that makes sense but it's it's like okay there's different ways to do that i think one is don't show the egregious cut to the sun just be like my son would never admit it but we're really grateful you get the point across. You know that the son would be grateful. That's fine, right? You can have your moment later on, even, where they work together as a team really, really well because of him being grateful. You don't need that little cut. That little that little two seconds is, like, annoying to me. Uh, <laughs> or or don't have the son, don't have the father come and do it. Have both of them come over and be like, yeah, man, like, I don't, like, you know, thanks for that. And don't be weird about it. Just be like, you know, we're not best friends now, but like, thanks for that. That was awesome. Or something. Give them a hug. Like, who, like, it's just better than the little, the little weird cut. Anyway, I don't know. I'm nitpicking, but I just yeah, found it's a, it's a major was... nitpick. I can't say I've given that moment any thought whatsoever. Exactly. Because, uh, because you're, you know, you're just like loving it. You're, you're, you're wrapped up in it. It's like, it's, it's really working for you. And it's funny when, when you're in that, headspace of being like yeah this is really working for me what is it about it that's working for me and then you find yourself writing this really lovely article that you wrote whereas for me it's like oh this is not working for me why is this not working for me and then you go looking for reasons so i think we're kind of like two sides of the same coin just some very different <laughs> responses you know like we're both yeah. the kind of people that go looking for reasons as to why we think the way we do and we just happen to think the opposite um but even though this is one of your favorite movies are there any parts of it that grind your gears a little bit or that you think are a shortcoming there's all these little nitpicks that you can come up with and i, I tend to find that if a film is engaging me then they it's not that they don't occur to me it's more that they just don't matter you know it's mm. like the avengers for example which we referenced there are a lot of issues in that film minor issues in that film but when i'm watching it i'm just having so much fun that i don't care and I'm, I'm happy with what it's giving me and what it's giving me is overpowering any shortcomings it has but yeah they well in this the idea of building the jaegers in the first place is a bit dumb when you because you see how effective these plasma cannons are just 
have those. Use those. Every time a kaiju shows up, fire a bunch of plasma cannons at it. Why not? But yep. my head cannon is when they were deciding, when they were having committee meetings deciding on how to deal with this, you had a couple of anime weebs in the committees and they were sitting there thinking, we could really do this. We could really get, you know, Gundams or whatever. We could we could make this a reality. And it's like, suggest it, see what happens. And then they suggest <laughs> it and suddenly they get made. I, I would like to see that scene, but I feel like that happened in, in, in my head, I think. Yeah. And, and someone was just dumb enough to listen to it because people in charge are idiots. So, like, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Travis Beachams of that world, they have a whole scene in the movie where it's like, so I was sitting at a beach. <laughs> and it's like yeah yeah you're right yeah and like they're wearing like um some sort of like anime t-shirt with like cheeto dust all over, <laughs> like all over the shirt just just all the cliches at once why not <laughs> with this big neck beard and you're just like yeah yeah that's <laughs> you could kind of picture that um yeah. I, I another nitpick on that front is the thing where it's like Mako, this is it. We're all out of options. It's like, no, we have one more option. The one that works ridiculously well. <laughs> a sword. Yeah. Why didn't we did, use that? <laughs> did Raleigh not read the memo when, you know, here's all the upgrades we've given to Gypsy Danger. A sword is one of them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like it's like it's basically a god killer. It's like that <laughs> it's like that thing that uh Christian Bale uses in that shit Thor movie that came out this year. It's like <laughs> It's like it, it, like it, it, it will kill the kaiju. It rips them in half. But it's a cool moment. That is a cool moment. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, where, where like the the kaiju is like swimming rapidly towards them, and they look done for, but they sort of like just slice this thing in half. Yeah, and then there's the, and there's loads of cool moments. I think that, like I said, Del Toro just wanted to indulge everyone's inner ten year old. It's yeah, let's use a tanker as a bat and beat a monster with it why not because that's <laughs> it's just cool or there was like yeah there was um the the idea of using little shipping containers as like <laughs> brass as like knuckles. brass knuckles but yeah. the thing is you've already got like metal knuckles <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, look, if it's anything cool. it's it's like less aerodynamic what are we talking about here uh but yeah it's yep. just fucking cool yeah and then the thing is, in terms of the visuals, you said you're, you you don't get sucked into CGI or whatever. And the thing is, I'm I'm more forgiving of bad CGI than a lot of people are. And I, I get a bit tired of the arguments that people lobby against blockbusters now when they say, but the, vis the visual effects were crap, the CGI was crap. And I, I mean, I can acknowledge that maybe it wasn't the best, but usually I don't really care about it as long as it's conveying the thing that I'm trying to look at well enough. It, usually I can find way far more flaws than there's some ropey cgi from some horribly overworked visual effects artists let's not single that out but yeah. the cgi in this is is incredible it's you know it, re it well it's 10 years old it really holds up but there's a, another movie versus episode jurassic park as in you know there's a lot of films that still don't look better than jurassic park and mm. i think there's a lot of films that don't look better than this 10 years on and, and what is that because like you're right there is like jurassic park we talked about Terminator 2 a couple of years ago. Like, I think visually that still holds up pretty well. Uh, even 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, looks a lot better than a bunch of space yeah. movies that have come after it. Um, Gravity is 10 years old now. Uh, that 
also looks really, really good compared to space movies this day, these days. What is that? Is that just a, a matter of just a bit of love and tenderness from, from the creative team that, that put the attention to detail? I think it's taking the time and planning it properly because you hear a lot of the criticisms now, all the people have spoken out about, for example, Marvel films, where they say they've been working for months on a sequence and then they get told, well, we're completely changing that sequence now and you have a month until we're releasing the film, so get it done. And they get it done. It looks like crap, but they get it done because they just don't have the time. But you can imagine on this, every sequence was storyboarded perfectly. It was all planned. It was all signed off. The visual effects artist got it in good time in order to deliver. So they were... It was properly prepared, which doesn't happen a lot in films now. We're sort of speaking to a wider issue when it comes to films generally, I think, is that money is king, isn't it? So you end up, you know, if if you're going to make, you know, if you are some random producer and your main motivator is profit, uh, you're going to do things like choose the visual artist team that are cheaper. Not necessarily better, maybe not even as good, but cheaper and maybe faster. Uh, and, you know, you're just going to make that choice and that's just the way it's going to be. You're going to cut other corners as well, aren't you? Uh, yeah. Throughout the process, uh, you're going to get rid of, you know, this really important, really great scene because, it's, I don't know, it adds five minutes to the runtime and we don't want people scared off by a three-hour movie. So, um, you know, instead we're going to, just cut it down here and cut it down here. And then suddenly you're left with a shell of a fucking movie. Like those sort of decisions are made all the time for profit motive. And again, like, as I said, I didn't love this movie, but I can respect that, you know, it's Del Toro. I love that man. He seems really unpretentious a lot of the time about the way he goes about things. And he's getting in there. He's making movies that he wants to make. He's putting love and effort into them, into original ideas I, I I care less about visual effects than you do. Um, I, I bad visual effects will take me out of a movie. Good visual effects very rarely do anything for me. Uh, but this the visual effects in this movie didn't take me out of it. So I think that that tells me that it was effective at least and helps it to hold up. Do you have? Let's talk about some favorites. You mentioned Idris Elba a bunch as Stacker Pentecost, which by the way might be a favorite character name. For me, loving <laughs> loving stack at Pentecost. That's fun. Uh, do you have any favorite characters, favorite moments, favorite lines or scenes? Because there are a few one-liners and things like that in here as well. Well, yeah, Stacker would be my favorite character. I just think that Idris Elba inhabits him brilliantly. I like Mako as well. I think she is really endearing throughout. And like I say, I think she's more of the protagonist than Rally is because she goes through more of a journey than he does. Mm. Even though he's the, it's almost like Del Toro snuck in the protagonist that he preferred, but also recognized that it's a Hollywood film. So we need to have a leading white man, but we've got, we'll sneak in this, this Asian woman as our actual protagonist and she can have more of the interesting emotional stuff. So it's almost like he's playing a bit of a trick as in he's making his masters happy, but still getting what he wants. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, he's playing the game in a way, uh, I think. So, yeah, I think she's a good character. Quite like the controller guy that looks like he's just come from a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> Mr. Choi, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's pretty cool. <laughs> he's 
he's pretty cool <laughs> from a doctor who convention uh we'll have to ask i'll ask baz about that um when yeah, I'm he's pretty much wearing the matt smith doctor who outfit with a bow tie and the suspenders and stuff <laughs> you mentioned favorite mo- like so when you're going into a movie like pacific rim i'm guessing favorite moments some pretty obvious candidates are some of the big yeah fight scenes right oh yeah but i love the uh, prologue sequence particularly the bit where they're you know, it's the normal procedure stuff. They're getting everything set up. They're, you know, getting logged in. They're doing the the neural handshake, as they call it. I love that phrase as well. I, mm. There's something about the normal procedure things that I like in, in films like this. Again, it helps with the world building, the idea that they do this every day. You know, this mm. is their job. This is routine. They have a routine. They have a process. They have a procedure. I love all that. I love it seeing it in Star Trek as well. So there's you know, a bit of crossover there in, in that respect. And it's just the... Yeah, from the being woken up and Raleigh being all young and excited about the fact we're going to go punch another kaiju, yay! Not un- unaware that his brother's about to die, of course. And mm. everything from there up into the wandering about, wandering into the ocean, and then fighting the kaiju as well. Um, it's all it's a really exciting opening sequence that really sets you up for what you're about to watch. You know what? Like you're bright, and I. I'm just trying to, I'm tr- in my brain right now, I'm trying to work out when the film lost me because it wasn't the opening. Uh, I did also enjoy that, all the prologue stuff, all the world building, even the narration, even the way it's like, you know, like, yeah, this has happened and, you know, suddenly they started, we, we thought they would come out of the sky, but they came out of the ocean and, you know, they talking about, talking about all that sort of stuff. I was just like, I was in, I was like, yeah, cool. Uh, particularly on the second watch. I can't remember my first watch that well. So the second watch just recently, I'm I'm in for all of that. And then I don't know. I don't know. It it may literally have been the Australian accents. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like it was, Jesus oh, sounds petty, but I can't, I can't pinpoint a moment, but I agree with you. I, I think that, I think that opening, I didn't love this, the fight where the brother is lost because I just don't care. I just, I just, I just don't care about big fights. I just, I just have no, I nothing them. I just don't care. So when I see a big fight, I'm like, cool, whatever. I don't care. But the, yeah, everything about that story building wise, world building wise, I was really getting into. Um, I, I'm, I'm down with that. What, what was your favorite non-fight related scene in the film maybe apart from that prologue was was there like a moment of tenderness or 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 story building that you really enjoyed well i really like the scene where they're sitting watching maintenance being done on gypsy danger that's a really it's a really nice scene and i suppose any scene where rally and mako are talking i think the it's really good i love the will they won't they thing that plays out throughout the film because I like mm. the fact that it turns out that they don't. There is no like there is no romance there. It's an option, but it doesn't happen. It's it's a subversion of expectations, and it feels like it's somewhat earned as well that they don't get together. I like that too, actually. You know what? Like the more I talk about this film with you, the more I'm starting to like it. <laughs> it's muted the Australian uh, accents. It, it, it really is. God, like if I that's the thing. If I turned it on right now, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> these guys again 
oh god damn it you know and then, then i'll start being like really australian just being like oh bloody hell take him out the back and shoot him bloody hell <laughs> like you know just <laughs> my neighbors must hate me at the moment it's like 6 30 in the morning on a sunday <laughs> you're just yelling <laughs> just yelling australian uh australian stereotypes um uh but yeah like the because i've watched it the second time without reading your thing and then i read your thing and i was like oh okay like i can appreciate a bit more and the more i talk to you and the more you're just like yeah i like this little scene or i like this little scene or i like that they didn't uh they didn't resolve the romantic thing that they were sort of potentially building up like they just let it be you know friendship and connection and i think that actually thematically to work it back into the mental health angle uh is stronger because you know, I, one, you know, like I, I'm sick of all the cliche shit from the, that you get from your Independence Day style movies. I'm sick of that stuff. I hate it. And the kiss at the end would have been exactly that. It would have been that <laughs> bullshit. And I would have sat there and gone, oh, oh, you know, bloody hell, throw it on the barbie or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, like, <laughs> but it didn't do that, did it? It, 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 yeah. it fought that. It went against it. And to go to work it back to that mental health angle, it tells you, because I think sometimes it's a trap that we fall into, right? Like say like right now I'm a, I'm a single guy. I live alone and I, uh, you know, sometimes feel sad or whatever else. And the, the instinct that we get taught from, you know, from Hollywood movies is that we should be paired up. We should have somebody to live with and share our life with. And we should have, these romantic connections. And that's, that's actually the goal. It's literally the goal is like, you know, once you've got your study and work situation sorted out, the next step is you work out your relationship situation and then you work out your family situation. Well, it's not only that, that's the basis of society as well. The idea that everything is more expensive if you're on your own mm-hmm. living, you know, paying rent or a mortgage is more expensive on your own. There, There is no scaling back for, single people the idea like a one-bedroom place is as as expensive as a two-bedroom place in a lot of cases for example whenever you see deals in supermarkets it's buy one get one free not half price stuff like that so yeah society is built on the the whole notion of pairing up and it's so hard like to eat healthily when you're a single guy unless you're happy to like you know basically keep the meal that you made for three days and eat that for three consecutive days or something it's well my uh, my hack for that is you spend four days cooking and then you batch the other portions so you've always so for the next 12 days or whatever you have a variety of things to choose from yeah but that's you know the same four things at least like it's better than having yeah. the same thing for three days but i don't know I, I i just get too annoyed for that sort of thing but the point is the point is they could have gone with the angle of look yeah like you've got some trauma and stuff like that and get guess what saved you love <laughs> I mean, well the, no the attraction is there she has a quick look at him when he's shirtless and stuff like that but yeah the, the fact that she is attracted to him doesn't necessarily follow that she will hook up with him those two no. things can be mutually exclusive and and it's it's way more powerful that it's like guess what saved you human connection yeah that's way more powerful than love in this particular example i think yeah and it means that like instead of you know instead of worrying about being lonely i can have a chat with my friend from edinburgh and be like i'm making a human connection that's better than being alone that's better than being sad this is good this is a win and i'm working towards something getting better 
instead of being like, hmm, poor me, I'm single, uh, I don't have love. At least I have human connection. And that's a way to get someone to be drift compatible with. That's the important thing. Do you think we would we would be drift compatible? I don't know. I, I feel like our Jaeger would punch itself in the face. <laughs> that might happen. <laughs> like, like I feel like in some p- particular respects, like I, I think back to our Academy Watch episode where we really bonded over Tick Tick Boom, and I sit there and go, "Yep, drift compatible." And then I think of like the myriad of other disagreements we've had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, I don't know if we would be. <laughs> You're right, we'd probably punch ourselves in the face. Oh no, he's chasing the rabbit. He's thinking about Rami Malek. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that would be such a thing. That would be such a thing. Like my trauma would be seeing Bohemian Rhapsody win four Oscars. That would that, <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> Best editing. What are you fucking talking about? <laughs> And you're just like, <laughs> you're like in the background being like, Bo, Bo, come on, come back. Don't chase the rabbit. <laughs> it was five years ago. Let it go. I've got a monster to punch. And I'm like, Ethan Hawke wasn't even nominated for First Reformed. What's happening? <laughs> We're just going to take a short break to hear some commercials. Back soon. And we're back. Who's the MVP of Pacific Rim? Idris Elba, hands down. I just like I say, he's the guy that keeps things moving, and he's just so unbothered about people's emotional issues. So he has so many iconic moments in it. I love the bit where Raleigh tries it touches him in the arm, and he just like recoils, and as if he's as if he's about to pounce, and he's like, "Number one, do not touch me again." <laughs> <laughs> Number two, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great moment, and when. Charlie Day has just bonded with or drifted with the kaiju and he's all shaky and he's trying to explain it. And you've got Newton in the back, um, not Newton, he is Newton. Uh, you've got the other guy in the background yammering away and he's just like, you shut up, you keep talking. <laughs> the way he just owns a situation the second he enters it. And you, at the start of the film where you've got Choi, he's like, yeah, so I hooked up with this girl last night and her boyfriend's not happy or whatever. And he just walks in and he's like, right, everyone on task. And everyone just shuts up. He's, again, immediate authority, immediate respect. He's just such a great presence in the film. And Idris Elba does a fantastic job playing him. Apparently Tom Cruise was considered for that role. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well, I, I like Tom Cruise as an actor. Yeah, I don't know if I'd have seen him in that role, though. Yeah. He he feels more like the, the Charlie Hunnam role, really. Yeah. I mean, Charlie Hunnam is probably among the worst choices you could have for that role. I don't think he has the level of charisma that's necessarily needed for a thing like this. He does fine, but forget about the other names that are listed on IMDb of who are considered, and I think almost all of them were better as an option than him. I tend to agree with you about Charlie Hunnam generally. I think he's probably on the weaker side. Uh, one thing I like about Idris Elba that you're talking about is that that easy gravitas that he seems to have. Um, hmm. I don't love the let's end the apocalypse speech um, because it actually has less of the albinisms that he does in basically all the authority roles that he does in his work that he's done across many different shows and, and movies uh, where he's, he's an actor I find that is particularly comfortable in silence. So he's, he, he'll kind of like, he'll say something and then he'll pause and, Watch if you watch him 
closely, he does this little like look up at nothing. Like it's like a look up to whatever, like, but only with his eyes, the rest of his head stays still. So it's like a, I'll say something I'm thinking now I'm going to look up and I'm going to come back to you. And the fact that the rest of the characters allow him to do that tells you that this man, he owns the space. Like he, like no one's going to, no, no one's going to fill that space with words. They're going to wait for him to continue filling it with whatever he wants because he's the boss. Um, and even at the point where Raleigh's character is challenging him, correctly challenging him, mm. he's still, as you said, number one, don't touch me ever again, kind of thing. Like he lets him have his little fun, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, hang on a second, I'm still the fucking boss. Here's how it's going to go down. And he's, he's, he does. He goes, step one, looks up to the sky, comes back, don't ever touch me again. Number two looks up to the sky again. Like it's, it's something that Elwood does in a lot of his work, a lot of his characterizations, but it gives his character, it imbues it with this sense of time and power that doesn't apply to other characters. Um, and I think that gives him gravitas. So I agree with you. I think he is uh, probably a much better choice for this role than someone like a Tom Cruise. I feel like they, yeah. they got that right. Yeah, even in this scene where he does open up about the well his illness and things like that, He's not emotional about it. He's very factual, isn't he? He doesn't. He's not looking for sympathy. He's not looking for Raleigh to say, "Oh God, I'm so sorry to hear that." He's just explaining it, and mm. even the, the explanation of how he came to adopt Mako and stuff. Again, he's not interested in the um, the emotional side of it. He doesn't like him and Raleigh aren't friends. Mm. You know, they're they're not close in that way. He's he's someone who works for him and. I guess he feels like he's entitled to a little bit more information because knowing that information will mean he'll get the best out of him. I think he's that sort of leader, so mm. it's great. And then the only little bit of emotion really is, well, the, the little quiet moments he has with Mako, giving her the shoe, telling her that she can pilot Jaeger, and then when he says, you can always find me in the drift as well, mm. is, um, which is something they don't follow up on in the sequel. But I don't know there's something comforting about that, isn't it? There's always a little piece of me in there somewhere. I don't know. Or maybe she can just drift and remember him. I don't know. I, I don't know what he means by that, but it's ambiguous. But the idea is like he's giving her that 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 emotional by his standards farewell kind of Yeah, that, that love was always there. It was always buried beneath the duty, I suppose, that he felt compelled yeah. to to perform. But he's just not uh, an expressive guy. That's fine. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, not everybody mm. has to be you know, well, you talk about the, the sort of millennial attitude of everyone has to be gushing their feelings at all times. It's mm. no, not everyone's like that. If you're like that, then great, because that's really going to help you if you can express feelings that way and get it all out there. But other people aren't like that, and that's fine for them as well. It's just a little bit harder to process everything when you're like that. Speaking as someone that is a bit like that, you know, it's just, it makes things difficult, but also it's no less valid as a, way to be that's right and i don't think this film says there's lots of different ways to conduct your connections but you can yeah. still have the connections uh there's the uh hilariously bad australian father and son and the father his name's uh max martini in real life american actor um he uh at, at, towards the end of the movie he basically says to his son, like, I don't want anything left unsaid. 
and it's like no 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 like you don't need to say it because that's just not the it's not the relationship they had and like he obviously had some regrets about that but they had they still had the connection obviously they were they were drift compatible they were constantly each other's heads uh chuck his son knew um like how he felt you know that's yeah. that so it wasn't it didn't need to be said uh idris elba didn't say a lot of emotional stuff but he still had connections he still had people he cared about yeah. and he was still able to make connections with basically whoever the fuck in the drift um yeah. apparently well they yeah they i understand that what you're all about so we'll drift just fine when he says that to the the son so yeah the idea that i you know I'm, i don't care about you but i understand you and that's all i need well that's that's connection right there yeah. right um a couple of things for me, uh, I, I, I was just thinking about the cast after you sort of mentioned a couple of, of the people there. Bern Gorman as Gottlieb, he's the other uh, scientist. <clears throat> uh, he's, he's the other scientist. I cannot see that man and not think fucking evil. <laughs> I, I, I just, I can't. I, I see him in a bunch of things and I just think fucking evil. Uh, particularly, I don't know if you saw the film Watcher that came out yeah. last year. You saw that one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, straight away, I'm just like, he's obviously evil. <laughs> What's, what are we even my, talking about here? My first encounter with him was in Torchwood, the Doctor Who spinoff. Right. So I just thought he was a bit of an arsehole. I've also met him. He, was, uh, he wasn't in a film, so I don't know what he was doing, but he was at the Edinburgh Film Festival one year, and I saw him at the closing party, and he was hammered, so I got a photograph with him. Did he seem nice enough? Or was uh, he evil? We didn't speak for very long. So no <laughs> idea. I just walked up and said, hi, how's it going? And he was, he was clearly on something. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, you, you mind getting a photo? And he's like, no problem. Took the photo. He walked away. That was the end of it. That was well, our, our interaction. Well, he sounds he sounds nice. Uh, sounds yeah. sounds more nice than the just the pure evil that his face con- <laughs> like conveys in in films. My goodness, um, he is your stereotypical socially awkward scientist in this film, though. Yes, very much so. Uh, my favorite, my most valuable player in the film, I think, and like the easy choice is is Del Toro. I think, and uh, mm. in, in, like that's a pretty standard choice. Uh, this this film, now that you've sort of convinced me of it, uh, very much leans into the whole what he does really well, which is these visual effects, the the this very visual style that he has with his storytelling, but imbuing it with a pretty strong emotional core. Uh, and whether you connect with it or not, like you did, I did not. That's fine. But uh, you know, it's hard to deny that he's operating at a level that people don't. Uh, with a yeah. lot of these sort of things. So, well, you just you know, look at the sequel. The sequel doesn't have the level of artistry that this one does. And mm. it's immediately obvious. The, you know, the, the Jaegers, the Kaiju, they have weight. You can, you can tell that there's something substantial there. Whereas the, the sequel, they're just running around and dodging and flipping and all that stuff. And it, it doesn't feel like there's much in the way of weight to them. But mm. in this, it's everything's lumbering, everything's slow. It's, you know, it takes a while to do stuff. So, yeah, the 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 sense of heft, I suppose, is is somewhat lost in a lot of blockbusters as well. When things are huge, you don't get a sense that they're having difficulty getting around because of their size. At at the risk of making my friend Dan laugh, because 
during the episode of King Kong with Andy Williams, uh, one of Andy's favorite things to talk about is tactility. Hmm. Is the is the idea of you know feeling like there's something that you're watching instead of it just being something that doesn't feel real, and uh, and we talk a lot about how King Kong, well, it, you know, that was all stop motion and things like that, so. It, it's very tactile, and that's that's a positive for that. Uh, and then my my friend Dan text, texted me, being like, "Loves the episode." Uh, word of the day is tactility. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the risk of making Dan laugh, uh, I will say that despite the fact that you're saying that it feels, you know, like there's heft, like there's scale, like there's that that is tactility, right? But that's tactility yeah. that's earned largely through character design. Because it is CGI, oh, and obviously yeah. CGI work, right? Uh, which is quite incredible because a lot of the time CGI doesn't really have that quality. Yeah, I think it's, it's a big problem in modern films. I would say. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Uh, my my MVP though, the the character that I connected with the most, and therefore I'm going to give the most credit to the actor for, is I connected with Marco the most. So hmm. the credit I'm going to give to. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi, the Oscar-nominated Rinko Kikuchi. She was Oscar-nominated in Supporting Actress for Babel in 2007. And I think at the time, I can't, like, usually I'd be right across this Oscar stat. I probably should have looked it up beforehand. But I feel like at the time, she was like the second Japanese person to ever be nominated for an, an acting Oscar. And she may, she may okay. well be the only second one still. Uh, to this day, which is just, you know, it's an indictment on the Academy. Uh, there's plenty of great Japanese actors giving great performances all the time in lots of movies in history. Um, but yeah, like, you know, she had to do it in a Western movie to get that recognition. But uh, yeah, the Oscar nominated uh, Rinko Kikuchi. I think she's really good in this. I've seen a lot of criticisms <laughs> that she's really wooden and stilted. And I think she's far less wooden than... than for example, Hanum. Um, Do you think and- that's people that just are trying to cover up the fact that she has an accent, and I don't like that? Maybe, yeah. Like honestly, I think you're, I think you're onto something because, like, yeah. I mean, she's she's not speaking perfect English, but like, so what? Like, it's not yeah. about that to me. It's about the eyes, and uh it's interesting doing some reading and you may have read the same thing that apparently in the early drafts of the script they were meant to be basically language-wise incompatible marco and raleigh um and that was a change they made where she was able to speak some english and he was able to speak japanese so they were able to speak whichever language to each other but initially it was meant to be they had no they had a complete language barrier so they were able to only connect via their shared trauma i guess uh, which actually i think might have been a stronger move frankly I'm not sure because i think Riley, having done that job for a number of years he would be based on the pacific rim so he'd be encountering people from various cultures all the time so it makes sense that he would just pick up a bit of language here and there so he could get by true uh he's also not really He's sort of coded as a as an unintelligent character. I think sometimes yeah. I, I thought so. That's a subversion, isn't it? The she speaks Japanese to say he's not what I expected, and he's like, "Hey, better or worse, just yeah. I'm not an idiot. I can hear you." 
yeah, and understand you more to the point. And yeah. um, I I do agree with you. I think I think people criticizing her are probably doing it based on uh, accent and maybe to a deeper level racism yeah. um, or misogyny potentially. Uh, it's when she's know, overwhelmed by emotion and slips back into her native tongue. That's mm. well, that's a common thing that multilingual people do, isn't it? They'll because it's it's a bit of an effort to speak the you know you're not your first language so if you're overwhelmed in some way you might just slip into your your native language so and she yeah. does that whenever she's like particularly upset or whatever it's a, it's a, an affectation i love seeing in in various things uh, across the spider-verse for example when miles is talking to his mother mm. they you know they, they slip in and out of two languages mm. liberally as they're talking and it's just and I've seen that in various other things where you know where that similar thing exists, and it's just a common thing where you know where, where people have held on to their their native language, they they go back and forth quite easily. Well, I geez, the more I talk about this movie, the more I like it. So I <laughs> I've got to give I've got to give you some credit uh, here. Have have. Have some cheering from the children that have been listening uh, to you, my friend, who has been able to. I, I don't think this is a masterpiece. This is not one of my favorite movies. Um, no, but it's not supposed to be a masterpiece. I don't think. I'm not going to like try and argue that it's a masterpiece. The, the fact that it's one of my favorite films doesn't mean I think it's the best film ever made or anything like that. It's just no. a film that I rank very highly on my personal ranking of films that I love, and I just, I, I just think that the fact that it's so unashamedly exactly what it is as part of that and it's it's not it's not just that though there there is more to it and i yeah. i think uh i think that's a point well made that you as i said you you make pretty well in your uh in your blog posts on neil before blog uh which i will as i said i'll put a link to it in the show notes below uh because uh, Craig, I don't mind telling you this to your face, and I have told you this to your face. Uh, you are one of the more interesting film writers that I've read because I don't always agree with you, but I like the way you write anyway, or I like the way that you present an argument. So, uh, and I, I did say off air, whenever we agree, whenever we get on the Discord, the, the network Discord, and we happen to, if I put down a strong opinion. Gosh, I hope that you're on the same page as me because <laughs> because otherwise I've got to really argue well. <laughs> so uh, oh, thank you. I, I'd, I'd very much recommend uh, all your writing that you do on on Neil Before blog. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yeah, like about the blog, about your accompanying podcast, and also we are Starfleet. I'll start with We Are Starfleet since it's on this network. I'm on there with Ian Buckley, who's one of your regular guests on here, I imagine. I imagine mm -hmm. he's been here quite a lot. I'm on there with him, Mike Slammer, and Ashley um, Thomas as well. We talk about Star Trek, or some Star Trek. There is two Star Trek podcasts on this network. You might ask why, and I'm not qualified to answer that question, but there are <laughs> two. And we talk about some Star Trek on that one, and it's been a really good time breaking down strange new worlds and things we're on massive hiatus at the moment until something new comes out which will be next year with star trek discovery we hope mm. <laughs> if depending when they decide to air it if the actors ever get off strike and are allowed to promote it and you know until you get what you want actors take all the time you need is, is all i'll say on that one mm. so 
there's that. And Neil Before Blog is a analytical review site. The analysis tends to be deeper when I talk about TV stuff because I tend to assume that people have seen the TV episode rather than a film where I might be trying to recommend they watch it or not watch it, depending mm-hmm. on my take on it. So do some writing there. It's been a while since I've written a review. The last review I did was of Totally Killer, which is Back to the Future, but a slasher movie. A Bloomhouse thing about like Happy Death Day and so on. Those combinations of genres, and it's pretty fun. So that was the last review I wrote. And the accompanying podcast, talk about a bunch of nerdy stuff. There is a long discussion about Pacific Rim that I did with my contributor Kat uh, some years ago, where we um, broke that down. So if you want to hear more chatter about Pacific Rim then <laughs> and me chatting more about it as well, it's over there. You can hear it uh, there as well. So yeah, all sorts of nerdy stuff there. Covered a monthly news podcast as well, which is a lot of work, but fun. And mm. yeah, that's that's Neil Before Blog. And it's on Facebook, Twitter, Blue Sky, all those places. Just type it and you'll find it. And neilbeforeblog.co.uk is the URL. I'm surprised you haven't you haven't done your uh, your standard. You have to tell me exactly what your Twitter handle or or Blue Sky handle is or or yeah, whatever it is, and then also <laughs> and also the disclaimer that you have to give as well yeah, yeah. as per so, your network contract. Yeah, so it's on Twitter and Blue Sky is Nemesis four nine oh nine, which was originally a, a Resident Evil reference that then became a Star Trek reference as well. So far, it hasn't become any other references, but maybe one day. Not yet. Yeah, that'll be my Jaeger. Would be Nemesis something. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Nemesis something. That's a good name, right there. Just yeah. don't don't change something. Just leave it as that. I don't know. Nemesis Omega. That could that be cool. Ooh, Ooh. I don't hate that, Craig McKenzie. <laughs> you know, would be the kaiju that's in that path. <laughs> that's true uh, i will i will put a link to uh, all the stuff that craig has just talked about including the episode uh where he talks about pacific rim in even more depth than we have covered here which i'm sure is very much worth your time uh and you get to hear cat gush about the online following that it received afterwards the apparently there was an entire tumblr thread on the gypsy is analog line because it was hilarious. People find it <laughs> hilarious. The idea that this this Jaeger with all these holographic digital displays was analog. With analog. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Good point. What the hell? Yeah. What is going on? I don't know. Like, let, 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 better not to think about it and just enjoy yeah. it like you have. That's probably a good yeah, way to exactly. be. But there's a, there's a whole, you could chase the rabbit of the, Pacific Rim internet fandom that I'm sure still exists. And <laughs> certainly Cat had a lot of fun with it. I had no idea it even existed, so it was eye-opening for me. Oh, well, uh, be sure to check that out. Do check out the show notes below because you'll find links to anything that Craig has just talked about. Craig, of course, it's always a pleasure to to chat. It was a pleasure to meet you in person in Birmingham. and yeah, uh, that happened. Yeah, it wasn't that fun. And, yeah. you know, we were... We were sat comfortably close to a ramp and uh <laughs> we were we were all discussing our favorite uh podcasting moments and and you were very kind to mention an episode that we did together and it prompted me to get a bit emotional about mine because then I'm like okay well if Craig's going to talk about that one then I'm going to talk about 
an episode that I did with these guys and then Ian did a similar kind of thing and then all of a sudden it became this big like love-in <laughs> where, <laughs> where we all just like, you know, and uh, honestly, the Birmingham ramp kind of has that influence on people, I think. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's Midnight McDonald's two days running as well. That that happened. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, watching watching movies at like 1am. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, when I'd uh, been awake for 22 hours straight, that was insane that was <laughs> that's a good shift you've done well <laughs> it really was yeah. 4 a.m flight into birmingham no it was 4 a.m wake up the flight was at like 6 a.m or something yeah and like you've you know you've done a decent shift there because you were also drinking I, I don't drink so like it was much easier for me to stay awake and enjoy airplane that was playing the fact on the that TV. i wasn't dead is astonishes me to this day <laughs> i don't know how i did it and then i only slept for like four or five hours before getting up again as well I don't know what I did. I don't what know how I did it. Oh, it was Greg's. Adrenaline. It was the it was <laughs> the lure of Greg's. Number That's what ten. it was. I need to wake it's... up and get my Greg's in the morning to recharge yeah. my batteries. Yeah. <laughs> you could you could smell the the lukewarm goodness of one of those <laughs> weird meat pockets or whatever they call them. My goodness. Yeah. Steak uh, bake. Steak bake, that's it. Oh, man. I, oh, anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Craig McKenzie, it has been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, too. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to Movieversaries and give us a rating and a review wherever you can. You can find my other podcasts and the work of my wonderful guests by checking out the links in the show notes. We will also find the credits for this episode. Movieversaries is a product of the We Made This podcast network. And if you've enjoyed this, there's a good chance you'll enjoy a bunch of our other shows, which you'll get a preview of in just a moment. If you want to help out our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash we made this. Thanks to your company, this has been Movieversaries. Do you like Star Trek? Do you like podcasts? Then we are Starfleet. Starfleet might just be the podcast for you. We are Starfleet. Featuring interviews with cast members, professors in academia, and New York Times best-selling authors. We are Starfleet. Join our crew of Trekkie hosts, Ashley Thomas, Craig McKenzie, Ian Buckley, and Mike Slamer. We are Starfleet. Stays focused on the positive, taking into consideration the spirit and ethos of the original classic Trek vision. Starfleet. You'll hear us elaborate on these deep references to established canon, making sense of the fantastic, and connecting the threads between all the series of the Trek franchise. We are Starfleet. Subscribe today to We Are Starfleet, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StarfleetPod. We are Starfleet. We celebrate the value of IDIC, infinite diversity in infinite combinations, and support DEI initiatives. We are Starfleet. We are Starfleet is a part of the We Made This network of podcasts.